0: Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. Welcome to a very special Romaniacs for the momentous week that the Labour Party finally made its mind up and got off the fence regarding Brexit, or at least climbed onto an exciting new fence. We'll be trying to unravel what it all means later, and we've got a heavyweight guest with us to help make sense of it. But before we get into it, let's say hello to a couple of our regulars. Ingrid Oliver is an actor, comedian and budding Tory (laughs) entryist. Hello, no budding about it. I'm an entryist. as, as a valued and possibly the youngest member of the Conservative Party, um, have you been <laughs> l- love-bombed by, by Jeremy Hunt and, and Boris Johnson? Are they, are they, do they want people like you to decide the fate <laughs> of Britain? Um, do you know what?
1: I... Uh... I, I, I just to explain to our guests and, the, and to our, any listeners that don't know what this story is about, I, I, a few months ago, uh, after having been a, la- a lifelong Labour voter, I joined the Conservative Party um, because I saw UKIPers uh, enter, enter, entering and trying to skew the vote for the next PM. So I thought, no, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to do the same thing. But as a Remainer, so screw you guys. Um, I have been watching the leadership contest with, with well, interest because I'm invested. Um and I saw a couple of days ago on Twitter people returning their ballot papers already, and I didn't have one. So I checked. And uh, there's a three-month cut-off point indeed, as everyone told me on Romaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I missed it by about five days. Aww. So I've paid £25 to the Conservative oh, Party. Fuck. I have this card saying I'm a Conservative member, which I take out at parties now as like a little trick. <laughs> um, and it's like I've pulled out a stick of lit dynamite. Uh, and all for now. But I'm quite relieved, because I don't know what I would have done. I would have probably had to spoil my ballot paper. I think. Oh. But yes, so, so I'm going to rip up the card live on air. I can't. It's plastic. I'm going to cuss it up <laughs> live on air.
0: <laughs> like that clip of that uh, wasn't that fascist trying to kind of tear apart a, <laughs> yeah. a placard and put it in the bin. Yeah, and you just couldn't. Do can't it. do
1: it. I'm a Tory forever now. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's the rules. Also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, an exasperated man on newspaper review segment. Hello, Ian. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Um, friend of the show Dominic Grieve amendment, just ab- <laughs> ab- about, <laughs> <laughs> great through on his attempt to stop the prorogation of Parliament via the Northern Ireland Bill, uh, by one vote I believe. What happened there?
2: Well, sort of a bit. Well, he he sort of had like three volleys really, and any one of them got through. Um, which doesn't really add up to much. Basically, can you put out some reports on a regular basis about what's going on in Ireland uh, through October to December? The, the bits that would be more meaningful, which would have brought the House back to actually look at them, those bits lost out. I think the only reason he managed to sneak it through is also there was some sort of catastrophic fuck up at the Tory Whip's office. Someone was in the loo or someone, you know, and, I mean, also, Kate Hoey, who presumably would have voted against it, was at Wimbledon and on we go. However, even on the lost ones, I think that it was pretty tight. So th- there was a lot of there was a sort of a wave of people giving up hope and being like well shit maybe we can't stop no deal maybe it's all over i wouldn't conclude that from it i mean it's still quite early days and people sort of think well let's see how this whole thing shuffles out before we try to take a stand and even on that basis you were talking at sort of like three four five votes on these things so pretty tight but i mean nothing that nothing was going on there to be terribly excited about but good old Dominic grieve amendment was still fighting its corner
0: um, you now see pro-rogue Parliament banners at Tommy Robinson demos. It's a, an exciting big new word for them. Um, <laughs> how likely is prorogation uh, if Johnson gets in? He's sort of leaving it on the table.
2: I still... Yeah, he is leaving it on the table. But of course, most of his motivations at the moment are, I must say whatever the Tory members want to hear so that I can get this thing. And at the moment, that's a demonstration of being hardline. So you can't conclude that much from it, although it's obviously quite... Schooling to be sat there watching tv debates where someone that's about to become prime minister refuses to say i won't shut down parliament in order to get what i want i i still think it's overall quite unlikely i mean you've got to like the actual process involves going to the queen to basically say this i mean basically embroiling her in the most sort of highly strung political moment you can think of now she would be under pretty Much a constitutional obligation to accept what he was saying, but that's such an unthinkable scenario that even for him, I presume it remains an unlikely. Can imagine being the Queen waiting for Boris Johnson to come <laughs> up and hell. ask you to like prorogue parliament, she's never done anything to deserve that. You just I turn the lights off, wouldn't you? Pull the tell him I'm not in. <laughs> it's the complete opposite of everything that she has made that she has done to make sure that that institution survives in Britain, which is just to stay away from this shit. And the idea that it would just be brought right into her home in that way is... You know, problematic to put it. Does as she have to
1: do it if he asks to do it? Does she have to say yes?
2: She doesn't have to do it, do anything as she's, right. she's the fucking queen. Mm, she's a fucking queen. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but constitutionally, yeah, yeah, yeah. she would be. I mean, the, the most obvious. It would be very surprising if she didn't go with what the prime minister was. suggesting.
0: we have a very special guest this week. Lock down your aerial because we're joined by West Streeting, Labour MP for Ilford North, indefatigable campaigner for a people's vote, and a doggedly independent thinker who's been denounced as disloyal by Ken Livingston and treacherous by Len McCluskey. <laughs> so he's come to the right place. <laughs> yeah, <we're so laughs> coming in.
3: You can judge someone by their enemies and I'm, I'm, I'm in good company.
2: <laughs>
0: so when you said you do the show, you probably thought it was going to be a quiet, well, not no weeks are quiet now, but a relatively normal week. Um, now we've got a Labour policy change. Not so long ago, there was talk of waiting to conference. Um, what do you think was the, the key factor that, kind of, that, that made this decision and made it happen now?
3: Yeah, it's definitely been an eventful week, both in terms of the Labour Party's position, but also the extent to which MPs were taken by surprise with the monumental votes we had this week and the victories we had this week. I mean, on on the Labour Party front, I mean, I think the the truth is that the pressure on Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him was overwhelming because the Labour Party is at its heart a pro-Remain party. It's a passionately pro-European party. And that's reflected not just in our membership, Um, our MPs but also our voters and we saw at the European elections what happens when the Labour Party tries to sit on its fence and and look both ways. It wasn't just that voters abandoned us in significant numbers and that Jeremy Corbyn has aided the revival of the Liberal Democrats, it's for me, the most damning thing was that four in 10 Labour Party members didn't vote Labour. And I think that sends a really powerful message to the leadership of the party that, you know, it it doesn't matter what your instincts are, or what you want to do. The the Labour Party is a pro-European party. And if you believe in, as Jeremy Corbyn says he does, a democratic member led party, then you've got to listen to your members, and people voted with their feet. We can't afford for that to happen again. And I think in the end, persistence, stubbornness, um, sort of good old fashioned politics, won through, and, and ultimately we've we've ended up in a position whereby, you know, between now and the autumn, the thirty first of October deadline, the Labour Party will be pushing for a public vote on any deal, and uh, making it clear that we would campaign for Remain, which is a massive victory for people power, the party membership, and also a vindication of those Labour voters, frankly, who didn't vote Labour at the European elections. They gave us a bloody nose and it worked.
0: Yes, which is kind of what we were saying on the show, is that now is your time to to send a message. Message sent. You also helped pass the, uh, as you're alluding to there, the Equal Marriage Amendment to the Northern Ireland Bill. Uh, Astonishing coincidence, the list of MPs who voted against it overlapped with a list of Brexiters.
3: Yeah, it's a mixture of the sort of <laughs> mad, sad and bad, really, were, were kind of lined up against it. I must admit, it's a surprising day. And, I mean, we've literally been doing nothing in Parliament for weeks. I don't mean that MPs are lazy and have all gone sleep or got their feet up. There's, frankly, plenty of stuff that we need to do as part of our day jobs that we haven't been able to do because Brexit has sucked the oxygen out of everything. So it's been a good period to catch up on casework and to think about the other priorities and issues that we want to prioritise in our constituencies. That's all really important. But we haven't had any sort of significant votes for ages. And then like buses, three come along at once. We had a vote on equal marriage in Northern Ireland. And when you think back to I was working at Stonewall at the time when we won equal marriage the first time, that was a huge battle of persuasion to get MPs to the right position. Yet the vote on equal marriage in Northern Ireland has sailed through. So if we don't have power sharing back in Northern Ireland by the 21st of October, Northern Ireland will have equal marriage, which would be brilliant. Um, Then Stella Creasy and Diana Johnson stepped forward to extend abortion rights to Northern Ireland. Again, if it's not done um, by October, we'll we'll be in the right place. That sailed through. Uh, And then we got to the Dominic Grieve amendment where extraordinary scenes. Uh, I won't name the Tory whip. I'll spare her blushes, but... Um, uh, one of the Tory whips basically voted by proxy for an MP who was off on, per, must be on um, parental leave, but she didn't actually cast her own vote. And by the time she realised that, the doors were locked, you get eight minutes to vote. She And what she tried to do, which is really cheeky, is she tried to go through the exit door where the whips are counting people through. And were it not for the sharp eye of Chris Elmore, one of the Labour whips, um, who I will name and praise, um, he spotted what she was trying to do, wasn't having any of it, and knew the rules inside out, which is crucial in parliamentary procedure. So like a procedural kind of praetorian guard, Chris managed to grass her up effectively, um, <laughs> and we won by one vote. Wow. And Because if, if she had voted, then it would have been a draw, and the convention is that the status quo would have won, so mm. the chair would have cast a vote effectively against. So we won by one vote. Um, Ian's right, we've got other other amendments of Dominic's that were lost very narrowly but the good news is this bill will go to the House of Lords they'll tidy it up there beef it up and send it back to us and we'll try and defend the Lords amendments so the day is not yet lost and I do think by the way by the time we see the bill at that stage we may well have a new Prime Minister and if Boris Johnson as it's likely to be not least because we've already heard Jeremy's Jeremy Hunt's vote has just collapsed by about 50% at news that your vote's been ruled out because you couldn't cast your membership (laughs) vote. Um, You know, that's the... um, You know, Jeremy's not going to win. So Boris Johnson will be in. And if he thinks he can get away with proroguing Parliament, that would be a democratic outrage. So I just think the... Those MPs who maybe are being, are being a bit queasy about it, those MPs in the Cabinet who maybe didn't support um, Dominic Grieve but might do it at that stage when they're not in the Cabinet, mm. I think there's everything mm-hmm. still to play for.
0: Yeah, there's a few enemies Johnson's going to make that are currently in the Cabinet.
1: I'm starting so, to think about that poor Tory Whip and I can't imagine, it's like having a bad day at work, she's going to be, I mean, bless her. I did, about... I did see her in the in the, oh, in the she... in the, in
3: the members' lobby afterwards and I mean, she, she looked absolutely Tears, tears in the ladies, toilet.
0: I've seen yeah. one where Homer Simpson arrives too late to the DVLA to get his license driving license. <laughs> just was sort of like desperately banging on the... No, but you know when you're just like, if I could
3: just, just squeeze me... <laughs> this
1: through the... <laughs> Gosh, there
3: was... I, 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 actually, I, I've got to tell one story, which I think Romaniacs listeners will definitely love. And that was um, when I was a, a relatively new... I'm still a relatively new MP. I've only been in four years. But when I was a brand new MP, you remember Ian Duncan Smith was the Work and Pension Secretary, introduced this really evil sanctions regime where people lose their benefits for turning up two minutes late to the job centre. Well, the, the vision bell's gone doors are locked and Ian comes running into the chamber, the doors slammed in his face so he can't get in to vote and the whole of the Labour benches were just shouting sanction him, sanction yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't have happened to a, to a nicer, nicer Brexit brilliant.
0: <laughs> so we'll explore Labour's uh, latest Brexit evolution later in the podcast plus the extraordinary attack on British ambassador to the US, Kim Darroch and what that says about our golden post-Brexit future. All this and more after a few quick reminders from Ingrid.
1: The March for Change in London on Saturday the 20th of July has a snappy new slogan. No to Boris, yes to Europe. And we will be there to do our bit and fly the flag for Remain. It's incredibly important that we get a massive turnout this time to make it clear that our side has the momentum. Uh, Sorry, where's not that sort of momentum. Uh, Although they are also welcome church. (laughs) Thousands of Remainers are coming from all over the country, so make sure you're there. We will be there too at the traditional meeting point on the corner of Curzon Street and Park Lane. Um, Our own Alex Andreu will be speaking on the Best for Britain stage, his mighty voice booming out like some sort of Romaniac Brian Blessed. And the brilliant Joel Morris and Jason Hazley, writers of the grown-up Ladybird books and Philomena Kunk, are creating a brand new series of placards that you can download from our Patreon site. Print and wave like banners of victory. So, come down with kids, banners, dogs and whatever else you can bring and show Boris Johnson he's not going to have it all his own way. Meanwhile, our next Ask Romaniacs podcast special for Patreon backers is coming soon. In fact, Dorian, Ian and I are recording part one right after the show. Send us your questions to info at with the subject line, Ask Romaniacs, and we'll answer the best and most thought-provoking ones. To get the extra podcast, sign up to support us on Patreon on the $5 tier or upwards. We'll send you the Ask Romaniacs special, plus every edition of the show, at least a day early. Mugs, T-shirts and a weekly column from the panel. If you're on the $2 tier, well, it's time for a sneaky upgrade now. Search Patreon <laughs> Romaniacs or visit our Facebook page to find
0: out more. Thanks, Ingrid. Uh, before we talk about Labour's change of heart, let's look at the forced resignation of UK ambassador to the US, Kim Darek, Just before we started recording... Derek quit his post after Trump announced he would no longer work with him in his own inimitable style. And Boris Johnson conspicuously failed to support a British civil servant under attack from a thin-skinned thug. Um, The situation was described as without precedent. Um, Now, the leak uh, came from Isabel Oakshot, a very reliable and diligent journalist Mm. who never loses any important documents in her loft.
2: Um, Was this a straight hit job from the... uh, from the Brexit contingent? It looks like it. Um, we don't know who the leak came from. And there are some people that, that doubt whether we'll ever be able to narrow it down. Um, but we can look at the network and we can look at the speed with which the leak translated into his resignation. So it starts with Isabel Oakeshott. She is basically a sort of de facto communications department for Aaron Banks, really. She wrote the book for Aaron Banks. She's very, very well embedded in that group. Within a few hours, Richard Tice um, and Nigel Farage are pushing for him to resign. Leave.eu, their group is saying that he should be replaced by Nigel Farage, because that's, you know, the president's man. Instantly, then Trump comes out and launches these series of vicious attacks sort of on, on the Prime Minister or on Britain itself, really, or certainly on its civil service, and also on him. Then we get the debate between Boris Johnson. And Jeremy Hunt, in which Boris Johnson just repeatedly fails to do anything to stand by him, basically makes it clear, look, you can come for him as much as you like, I'm not going to do anything about it myself, Um, and praising Donald Trump. And then he watches, according to, his own, according to accounts from two separate senior journalists now, that was the point where he thought, well, I need to, I need to step down. Because quite clearly, when Boris Johnson comes in, I'm not going to have the support of the prime minister. And it's been made clear by Donald Trump that I'm not going to have access there. So that operation basically takes place, what, from between Sunday to Wednesday morning. That's how long it seems to take for what, I mean... It's not a conspiracy theory, is it? I mean, it's hard. You you would have to be very, very imaginative to come up with some different assessment of how that story operated, given the person breaking it, given the speed with which the Brexit domestic forces responded to it, given how weak um, Boris Johnson was, given the predictable but, you know, sequential response of Donald Trump to his resignation. So we're basically at the point now where the Brexit forces at home, in combination with Donald Trump, get to decide who our ambassador is to the US. So why did Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson hate Britain? (laughs) That's a good question. It's very very revealing to think how quickly all of that patriotism and all of the nationalism withers away when it's not the EU that you're talking about, when suddenly it's the Americans that you're talking about. And this acts as a pretty good prelude to what that US-UK trade deal would look like if we were ever foolish enough to sit down in that room and try to sort it out. It's also, I think, when you think about national, just the basic national interest, imagine that right now you are an ambassador for the UK and some other country, and you think, well, A, anything I send back and their job Their actual job is to express in clear terms what they think is going on with those administrations. You would have to be completely inept at your job to come up with any conclusion other than the one that he drew and reported back to Downing Street. You think, well, if I speak in those terms to my own government, it will A, be released, and B, the prime minister, the future prime minister, is not going to stand behind me. He will basically allow the leader of the country I am in to dictate who I am, if it happens to be a country that he's in support of. So you look at all of that and you have to sit back and just go like fuck me, like that is a pronounced moment of national humiliation that we have just gone through. Like really quite an important moment to just put a mark in it. When, we, when you have all those years, the last three years, when it was called Project Vera going like, this is going to result in Britain being weaker. And when it's weaker, stronger countries, not just the US, countries like China as well, will be able to bully us around as much as they like. And now this right now, this is what it looks like.
0: Wes, Andy Wigmore and Richard Tice were sort of calling for a, a kind of a purge of the civil service, uh, laboring under the delusion that the Brexit party is actually in government. Um, <laughs> is this kind of, I mean, they, they say a lot of shit, but is this something that you think is very worrying, looking forward to a Boris Johnson premiership, that there will be, and there's always been, there's always been rounds at different times about the politicization of, of the civil service, but do you think there will be a concerted attempt to to, to politicize it, to remove certain people because that's what the rhetoric is saying.
3: Yeah I I think there's something deeply sinister about their rhetoric and I am really concerned about the organised alt-right in this country and the extent to which it is now actively attacking every single one of the pillars of democracy that uphold Britain's constitution and our liberal democracy whether it's the role of parliament, the role of the executive, the role of the courts, the role of the media, the BBC you know and now the diplomatic service and the civil service itself um i think it is a sign of huge weakness not just on the part of boris johnson and what he said during the debates but Actually, on the prime minister herself, how many more humiliations does this country have to endure at the hands of Donald Trump? I I really value the special relationship that the UK has with the US. I think it's a really important bilateral relationship. It's really important in our changing multipolar world that we continue to have a strong alliance between democratic nations. But a special relationship with a country is not the same as kowtowing to a president like Trump, who has attacked the prime minister, attacked the mayor of London, attacked our ambassador and now effectively fired him. And as Ian said, how do you uphold the integrity and impartiality and the independence of the civil service if the person who wants to be our prime minister isn't going to stand by them? So I I think we've got to take this really seriously, actually. Um, I see the same patterns of um, behaviour, by the way, on the alt-left in this country as well, attacking the same institutions Mm -hmm. and trying to undermine the pillars of our democracy. And I think think whether on the centre-left or the centre-right or, or you know, the Liberal Centre, we've really got to rethink through how we defend the fundamental pillars of our Liberal democracy because it's fragile, more fragile than we think it is, and it's precious. And to see these people in a very systemic, organised way undermining a public official in this way and succeeding, it, is, it, is, it sends shivers down the spine. And I really hope, as Tom Tugendhat, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, has said that the person or people responsible are found and prosecuted.
0: Could this be because the the kind of detail the information people were saying that it's you know it could well be a cabinet minister? I mean that seems a remarkable risk to take. I mean, do you think it could be somebody that high up? Because I mean that seems I mean that would be a career ender.
3: Yeah, I, 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 I'm just trying to think through who who's in the cabinet. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that any single one of those people would behave in such a reckless and irresponsible way because it has. It's not just taken out the ambassador in Washington. It has done fundamental damage to the the relationship between the diplomatic service and the government, and and it's undermined Britain, you know, on the on the world stage as well. And I think lots of people will be looking at this quite aghast at the sequence of events and how our country has has allowed this to happen.
0: Yeah, there's one thing that that, that puzzled me was that it, the fuss uh, before Derek quit, um, was sort of seemed to scupper Liam Fox's uh, trade mission to the US. Um, which seems bad for the Brexiters, who certainly want trade with the US. So, if if the Brexit, if this was, like I said, a Brexit hit job, are they just? Is this just their nihilism coming out, or is it they they, they sort of love Trump and right wing populism more than they more than they want a good trade deal? It just doesn't seem to sort of add
2: up. If you I, I, I don't think they'd be too concerned about the timing of. Wendy Liam Fox would be visiting the thing, and you just think, well, that's fine. I mean, he's always sort of going on these sort of right. business, and that would be fine. I mean, the main thing would be for them is that there is a guy there who is not a true believer. He hasn't reached Brexit transcendence. He's still questioning things. He must therefore be gotten rid of, and we must get one of, you know, ideally one of our own people there. And so it was an attack. I, I, I don't know if the timing would have been too affected by Fox's visit. For what it was worth, I thought Fox... This is the second nice thing I've thought about him in the last two weeks. The first one was when he came out and said the Article 24 stuff was nonsense. The second part was I actually weirdly quite liked what he did in the US because in the US he was like... People got upset and they thought, oh, why is Liam Fox apologising for saying?" It was like, well, actually, his stuff was about apologising for the fact the leak got out. It wasn't an apology for what was said in the actual briefing." So I thought it was a classic political apology, but actually done in a way that I, for a rare moment, found quite satisfying. Because the thing
0: is, the briefing, it wasn't like super bitchy. It was like, that's just, like, everybody thinks that.
2: It would be mad if he was saying anything else.
0: It's just like, yeah, it's like, how could you not say that he was, what, inept and...
2: He said many things.
3: I mean, all of them were true. A t-
0: yeah. A turd head. A tur- <laughs> no, but that's it. He didn't say he's a stinky t- turd head.
3: <laughs> also, I mean, the nature of Trump's response and the attacks on Theresa, uh, you know, is, uh, when I saw his attacks on Theresa May, I thought, back off, mate, that's our job. We're supposed, <laughs> yeah. to, we're supposed to run down the Prime Minister. We can do it, but there's no way you're allowed to do it. And there is a, there is a kind of serious point here, which is that the, the, Trump's reaction, I'm afraid, has completely vindicated. Sir Kim Darroch's judgment. He's basically presented, you know, Trump as a thin-skinned giant man-baby with a dysfunctional White House. And what does Trump do? Behave like a thin-skinned man-baby in a dysfunctional White House. So good on Sir Kim.
0: <laughs> um, Ingrid, is this, is this wetting your appetite for, um, for a, a Johnson premiership? Is, is, it, is he likely Can to be kind of... give it a rest? <laughs> no, no, you, no, I don't mean because you're a Tory. I mean... Um, no, but just in terms of, like, he hasn't even won yet, and already he seems to have managed to uh, cause the resignation of a very important British diplomat. So it's quite... It's quite ominous.
1: Yeah, well, as Wes and Ian have just said, it feels like we're under attack in, in a very fundamental way. And I... I was in America. I was in California when when the the result of the EU referendum was became known, and for Trump's election. And I remember at the time, checks and balances was being thrown around. It's like it's fine. It's going to be checks and balances. Checks and balances. They are they are disappearing, and these people who want who don't want a civil service that's impartial, uh, they want to replace these people with people who will carry out what they want. So the, our checks and balances, that, that's what I, I always had faith in the UK, actually, has been quite a sensible nation. And that with someone like Boris Johnson, I, I look at it and go, holy shit, I, I really can see that all disappearing quite quickly. And that's what that's, that's terrifying. As a, as a Tory member. <laughs> <laughs> as a Tory? <laughs> yeah.
2: There is something to learn, I think, um, for Remainers in terms of how you argue. And it's quite a cynical thing to learn, but I think it, it, it can be helpful and it's a useful moment to spot it. Because Sometimes you can't make any movement on the issue that you're discussing. So for instance, the, the debates that we're having about Europe, where you can make much more movement and convert people over is by having another conversation. The other conversation can be, do you want to be completely subservient to the United States? Do you understand that where this road ends is Washington telling us what to do? And that is actually quite a rich seam, I think, for flipping people over. And this week will demonstrate. I mean, even if you looked at the debate between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt uh, last night... People were clapping all sorts of dreadful shit. In fact, frankly, the applause was doing my head in because I was just thinking that well, there is not a single thing that has happened tonight that deserves even one clap. And it's appalling that you are. But nevertheless, the applause for when Jeremy Hunt was firm on the America issue, even among that audience, um, was actually was, was, pretty, was pretty strong. And that is a good indication of how rich that scene can be.
0: Moving on, the great day is at hand because Labour has embraced a crystal clear policy on Brexit. The party wants a <laughs> referendum on any Conservative deal and would then campaign for Remain. Hooray! But, Corbyn's steer clear of saying what Labour's position would be during a potential general election or whether Labour would fight that election on a promise to leave the EU anyway. Ooh. Ian, um, Remainer responses <laughs> for this range from relief to cynicism to confusion um some people were doing flow charts and that 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 meme of the the board with all the red string on it um, is, uh, can you can you just sort of explain i mean does it seem does it how does it seem to you
2: does it seem overly complicated does it seem like an, a new kind of fudge um okay so can I, can i back can i back from that a little bit and just say how it came about or where how we've gotten here and then and then sort of go on to that it's basically look if you remember like the conference we got to that point of all options on the table Um, among them a public vote, and then if you remember there was that quick kickback where they tried to suggest that Remain wouldn't be part of the public vote. Keir Starmer sort of pressed forward and made sure that it would be. Then we got to February, where the position changed a little bit more and it was like well there'd be a referendum on a Tory deal now we've shifted again so the old wishy-washy stuff around maybe it'd be a general election maybe it'll be a referendum has gone away and it will be a referendum and it will be on the to- Tory deal or a no deal but also importantly it would be on Labour's deal so the referendum policy is locked in and it's explicit that is a change that is mm-hmm. a shift that is a change and I think also their position is internally consistent I think it's, it's logical to say look if it's their stuff We're going to have a referendum on it. But we do ask that we're going to get another quick shot at this and then we'll have a referendum on us. So that works. My concern, and it's not so complicated as to be unthinkable or whatever, yeah. it isn't. I mean, you can, you can understand that stuff, even if it's, you know, by the time the stuff's released to the public, it's put out and the stuff are like, scenario one, blah, 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 scenario two, and you're like, well, you need a clear message here. So putting scenario one at the start of it isn't necessarily helpful. Yeah, if you lift the sword from the stone, turn to <laughs> 37. <laughs> um, so look, the, the other, that's the other one question. Is that a coherent? Sure, it is. The other one is, is it enough at this point to bring Remainers back on board? And I'm afraid my answer to that would be no. In that I think if you'd done this 18 months ago, two years ago, maybe after the general election, I think that that would have been enough at that time and that could have done the job. I think right now I don't see that. In that you have this problem of what happens if there's another general election, which there probably will be. You know, probably at the end of this year, I think it's very, very likely, or maybe next year. Um, And then under this proposal, unless it changes again, which admittedly is quite likely, Labour will be going forward and saying they would ultimately be a pro-Brexit party. Now, there'd be a soft Brexit party. I think that's very, very clear, but you'd be a pro-Brexit party. And then what are they going to do in the referendum that would follow? Would you say, well, we're going to now campaign against the deal we just negotiated? Fuck no. You're going to have to say, well, we're going to have to push for it in the referendum too. And on that basis, I think you'd have to be an unusual Remainer to think that's a better deal for me than the Lib Dem one. But that was because they were saying
0: that they would, whether they campaign for Remain or not, would depend on the deal they got. But that would that's weird. But that yeah. would be weird because then yeah. that would mean that there's a possibility of them accepting that they've come back with a shit deal that they're then gonna campaign against, mm. which seems like not great for politician. <laughs> I,
2: I wouldn't put it past Corbin though. <laughs> um Wes, how do you've been pushing for this
0: uh you know, for something like this, you know, for for a long time. I mean, how do you feel about it? Would you would you have gone further or do you think that Labour cannot completely close the door on the option of respecting the 2016 result on some magic kind of no downsides circumstances. Like how did you feel when this when this was announced? Was it like yes or yes but?
3: Yes but and I think people are looking for three things from Labour. Clarity, consistency and conviction and where we've got to this week I think gives us um, some clarity and to a certain extent, some consistency in that the, my relief, and it was a genuine feeling of relief, is thank God between what is now likely to be um, up, uh, the period up to the end of the 31st of October. We no longer need to have running weekly battles with our own leadership, dragging them, kicking and screaming mm-hmm. to the right position on these issues. You know, we know that whatever deal Boris Johnson comes back with, we will uh, vote against it and push for it to go to a public vote where we will campaign to remain we know that if he tries to push no deal we'll insist that that option is put to the public and we would campaign to remain so that gives you the clarity and i think everyone would want to get behind certainly everyone listens to this would want to get get behind it the the challenge however is beyond that and and and, and actually between now and october where, where i think we we're lacking is conviction because what I would want the Labour Party to say, and I genuinely understand what Jeremy Corbyn was trying to do in trying to say, well, we don't want to alienate a divided country, we want to bring people together, we want to chart a way forward, look how damaging and divisive this is, and, and let's not ignore the message that people sent us when they voted for Brexit. I, 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 I accept the sentiment of all of that. But the problem is that in in trying to please everyone, he's pleased no one, and... We haven't been true to ourselves or true to our voters, and and most importantly, I think, true to the national interest. Even if, like me, you voted to trigger Article 50 because you thought it was important to let the government try and negotiate something and to show some willingness to accept the result. The last couple of years have been a total horror show. Every single promise that the Brexiteers made hasn't been delivered. They can cry foul play as much as they like, but the problem is that all of those promises were made could not have possibly been delivered, and Boris Johnson's about to find that too. Whatever Boris Johnson comes back with will fall short of what was promised during the referendum and will fall short of what we already have with the European Union, crucially. So whatever kind of Brexit is available, and there are different models and different options, but every single one will leave us less well-off less safe, less secure and less influential in the world than the deal we already have. So just on that base alone, why on earth would any self-respecting legislator vote for something that they believe would actively in some way harm our country's interests? And that's where I think the conviction's been lacking. And I, what makes me so frustrated is that I think that whether it's a ref, an upcoming referendum campaign, but also winning the argument between now and then, The Labour Party, as the official opposition, has a responsibility to the country to be making these arguments and to make them passionately and to to argue them with conviction and to have some uncomfortable discussions with voters in our own constituencies. You know, mine mine is a Leave constituency. It voted roughly 52 53% Leave. So I talk to people who voted Leave all the time. But they're not punishing me for for my position there'll be some people who obviously don't vote for me at the next election cuz they don't agree with me that's democracy and I'm all right with that that I can take that on the chin but i think actually we're in danger of losing people who do agree with me um because they think well you know okay you agree with you but you know where's the labor party on this where's our party on this and i think that that's the 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 kind of the mess we've gotten into um, as Ian said, I think it's going to be hard to win back some of those voters we've already lost. I think it really depends on the MP. So I've had lots of people who voted Lib Dem at the European election say to me, like, I know where you've stood on this. I'll vote for you at the next general election. There'll be other MPs who have been really out there um, fighting the good fight. Uh, I think there'll be others who will struggle. And even, you know, even in those areas that voted leave, I think Labour MPs will be surprised at the extent to which their majorities have been dependent on Remainers. And I think that's been lost in this debate. I'm really fed up with hearing from the same MPs who are, you know, the self-appointed voices of the entire North, while (laughs) MPs like Bridget Phillipson and Phil Wilson, uh, you know, in places like Sunderland and and Sedgefield, which are also heavily voted Leave, they're speaking up for Labour voters in their area who voted Remain. And yet it's like these people don't exist. It's like we've got this homogenous place called the North, where everyone voted Leave and wants out. It's just not true. It's just not true. Um, So it's it's difficult for the Labour Party. I, I wish we were arguing with even greater clarity and conviction, but you know, to be honest, this this week has been a win. It crucially gets us through the important votes. But I would just say to the Labour leadership is that if they think they can get to a general election where the manifesto is debated and discussed and we can get away with being a pro-Brexit party, they will find that their MPs are, and candidates are up in arms. They won't want to stand on that manifesto. But also, who on earth do we think is going to go out knocking on doors for us in that election? Mm-hmm. You know, our, our, our party members will not want to go out and campaign for a pro-Brexit party. So... I, I just wish the Labour leadership would give the impression of wanting to be in the right place as opposed to being dragged to the right place.
0: So, Ingrid, I thought the energy... To, I, I didn't find this policy particularly sort of hard to follow. But I found this sort of the energy of the response really interesting, that it was kind of a bit meh. And yeah. that I think a few months ago, you know, there's still this idea, OK, Labour will will commit to a referendum... And a lot of people on the left were going and now Corbyn can lead it because we don't want the centrists leading it. And, you know, there can be this lusty, kind of, you know, sort of conviction behind it. Um, and it just, just, I don't see that feeling at all. Is there, do you think it's too late? Can they prize you away from your new Tory family.
2: (laughs) You were like three for three on Tory jokes. (laughs) She's
1: she's never going to die. She's
0: going to cut up the card soon. I was doing it it. for us. I was doing it for us. This
1: is the last week I I can do it. I sacrificed myself. No, uh, the problem is I... Because I feel like like every week there's been an announcement that Labour is going to announce that they're going to come out in favour of a second referendum. So... It's that false start that, that I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted sort of reacting, so I stopped reacting to those stories because I, 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 I sort of what well, I thought. Well, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. And now that it's actually now that it's happened, it's what sort of words was saying really. It's it's about conviction. And as we've often said on the show, it's not just the message that that's important. So even if if Labour did come out for Remain, it, it's who's saying it. Who's who's saying the message? And if it's Jeremy Corbyn, I'm afraid he's not the right person to convincingly. Lead a Remain
0: opposition, um,
1: so that is the problem. There
0: was an expiry date, yeah. It wasn't there? I think everyone was just like waiting, 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 and then at a certain point, I remember I was just like, I don't believe you anymore. But he was
1: never that person. We all know that from before the referendum, yeah. he was never that person. So he can't suddenly, and, and he can't suddenly become someone he's not. So for me, I mean, my I, I would love there to be a, a new leader of the Labour Party that would convincingly campaign for Remain and. And and start focusing on other things, and and sort of go. Yes, we'll devolve some power. To, we'll devolve uh, the treasury to the north, which John McDonnell, I think, has has come out and said as new ideas for England going forward. But also, convincing him passionately believes in Remain, and I don't know how that's going to happen. I, I just I, I'd be quite curious. Is is does the leader of the opposition's office? How the, how how are you Remainers regarded? Is it sort of like? do they point and go, there's a Remainer? Or is it? Is it sort of like, oh, we know you're right, but it's really hard? Is it, what's the, I'm just quite curious. I, I
3: think my impression of the leader's office is that they're also divided on it. And right. one of the interesting things for me about this as someone who is, you know, has always been critical of, of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership on a number of levels, is that Brexit isn't an issue that divides the Labour Party. <laughs> and this has been the most frustrating thing. I mean... You know, just just the other week, it was sort of heavily briefed that Diane Abbott and John McDonnell, two of Jeremy Cor- Corbyn's closest allies, went in to see him and said, "Look, Jeremy, you're in danger of losing your authenticity on this, and you're not taking the party with you. This, you know, you've got you've got to change course." And John McDonnell described it as a slow-moving car crash. Now the, these people could not be more loyal to Jeremy Corbyn personally or to Jeremy Corbyn's project. Similarly, you know, I do think one of the successes of the pressure brought to bear on the Labour leadership is that it's not just been Labour MPs leading the charge on this, but you've had grassroots movements like you know another Europe is possible, love love um Europe um. I love cor- <laughs> got to get this right. And he said, "I um, love love Europe." Hate Corbyn. Um, no, that's my group. Um, no, they, they, love socialism. Hate Brexit. Uh, oh God, they're going to kill me when they hear this. Um, but um, you know, and and, and you know, full credit to them because genuinely, this is an issue that. Unites, And this is the frustrating thing. I mean, and actually, and to be fair to sort of where we've got to so far, I mean, you know, my whip is um, Thankam Debonair, who is um, the brilliant MP for Bristol West, passionately pro-European, not always able to be as outspoken as as she would like as a, as a whip. But I, I hope I don't get her into trouble by saying that I can honestly say as my whip and as someone who's rebelled a couple of times on Europe, um, she fights the good fight and makes sure that things are kind of heard internally. You know, as, as Thankam points out, we would have left the European Union already, were it not for Labour votes and the Labour whips and Labour MPs. So, you know, I don't want to see us overly beaten up on this. But you know, this is the frustration though, isn't it? I mean, there are people who are passionate Corbynistas who voted for Jeremy Corbyn twice, and people like me who have never voted for Jeremy Corbyn in the leadership contest, who are all on the same side on this issue. And I just wish that we had at the top of the party that passionate expression of our pro-european values that mm-hmm. i think the members deserve and and actually you you're totally right Ingrid in terms of the condition of the country what i really want to say to people who voted leave in labour areas and who voted um, leave saying when you know things cannot get worse than this is it actually things can get worse than this but second if we remain in the European Union, we have got a radical agenda for economic reform in this country that will, will that will dramatically change your experience of work, the opportunities available to you and your family, your experience of public services, the local infrastructure around your towns. We're going to make you more connected, um, more prosperous, connect you to this world of opportunity. Um, but And we will try to do that if we leave, by the way, but we've got to be honest about the fact if we leave the european union trying to achieve those things is going to be 10 times harder and that's why i never get the the lexit case i really don't understand it why on earth do you think that a jeremy corbyn led government with john as chancellor will somehow have an easier time of it outside of the european union if you want to do things like you know nationalizing everything and pumping loads of money into public services how on earth do you think you're going to do that in the middle of a recession that's caused by brexit
0: Before we move on. Um, I think people. I worry sometimes that it's easy to get a bit carried away by the sort of criminology, and I've certainly noticed on Twitter that a lot of people are into. Um, i become quite obsessed with the with M people, which is uh, Murphy, Milne, McCluskey, <laughs> and Murray. Um, and and there is this sort of like kind of vision of this kind of like pernicious cabal. Um, do you, from your you're a man with your ear to the ground. Um, do you get the feeling that certain key players, I don't know whether that would, that would be McDonald or Abbott, um, that moved, that sort of something shifted? Because there's been pressure. The polls haven't changed. There's been pressure for members and MPs and so on for a long, long time. Do you get the impression that something shifted among his allies
2: where they kind of... Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, it's just... Who, who I mean, were, do, do you know where the particularly... Well, it's just, like, it's just like you just said. I mean, when... Do you remember that moment where they came out after the mm-hmm. conference vote and said oh, well actually maybe remain wouldn't be on the ballot that was John McDonnell now John McDonnell was the one pushing hard to, to change position so I think you know it's been more and more isolated the lexit sort of what is it the lexit corner of the leaders office I was going yeah that will do so I mean they are really they're, they're sort of a bit a bit gone really uh, you know, you said, you think about the energy I think you look at it and you just sort of think like, A, there's there's fatigue on the Remain side, just like we've heard this a lot of times now and, 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 you know, it's still coming. Then there was the European election and the local election results which showed that actually the Lib Dems were a viable party to try and take stuff forward. Before, it didn't look that way. So kind of the only vehicle you really had was Labour and it wouldn't shift. Now there's the slow, cautious moves towards some kind of progressive coalition among Greens and the Dems, as you saw in like the Britain, um by-election, where they're starting to move, work together. There could be more of that. So that is, again, a viable thing. And then I think because this all takes place in the backdrop of, of the anti-Semitism debate. Mm-hmm. So as you see sort of Labour maybe coming more towards your position, I think we're, it almost feels like we're at a critical mass reputationally of just the, the stuff around Labour as an institution is just so putrid and appalling at the moment that you're like, well, do I want this to be the vehicle? Now, electorally, yeah. that doesn't make sense. You need Labour on board for any, any scenario in which this thing's going to change. But in terms of just how it feels day by day, when most of the stuff you're seeing from Labour is about anti-Semitism and just just a, just an, an endless inability to get a hold of it. And every protest you see at one moment talking about the Israeli embassy and the gaza and you just think that this fucking filth so then suddenly when they're coming more towards you, you think, I don't even know if I want you yeah. anyway. Well, we're
0: we're going to talk more about that later, big week for anti-Semitism. Um, <laughs> but one, uh, one bit of good news uh, is that Kate Hoey has decided to go and she will not be standing <laughs> for Labour. Do we expect her to become uh, a Brexit Party candidate? No.
3: No? No, I don't think
0: so. You think she's just, she's like, I'm out of here. Yeah, I think so. Mike I mean, Mike she, 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 <laughs> yeah. she,
3: she's been she's been an MP for for decades, and um, I, I probably shouldn't say this on a Romaniacs um podcast. I've I've, I've always gotten really well with Kate on a personal level. I disagree with her so fundamentally on so many issues, from sort of fox hunting. I think her LGBT rights voting record's been pretty appalling, and um, and I definitely disagree with her on on Brexit. But I, I do respect her as a conviction politician, um, and. Um, yeah i th- i kind of respect her for going on our own terms actually and for saying okay i've done my bit um i mean i mean we, we we'd like her to go now let's <laughs> get a, a, rem- a remainer in in Vauxhall. um but you know as i said as i said um as i said the other day you know i think i think we can expect to hear a bit more from kate before she goes but um but i re- i do respect her as a conviction politician
0: i just hate hearing I don't like a nice in person. <laughs> so is. disappointing. She
3: is. She is nice in person. Sorry, 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 everyone. She, <laughs> she's not as she's not as wicked as that photo with Nigel Farage implies.
0: <laughs> so our special guest throughout the podcast has been Wes Streeting, Labour MP for Ilford North. Wes, there's this problem with uh, some ardent Labour remainers who are also critical of Corbyn. Is that is that people assume uh, that they're using the issue as a stick to beat him with? And I remember Chuka telling me, you know, that this was what he was accused of. And obviously, he's been on on a journey so corbynites you know could maybe say well we we were right it was more about him not liking corbyn than about yeah has really helped us with that journey (laughs) yeah yeah. do you (laughs) think that criticizing corbyn vocally sometimes sort of gets in the way of your message and brexit that they that it's sort of easier if you're seen as kind of very passionate about remain but you know not too harsh about
3: the leader i think one of the key ingredients to the success we've had on shifting the position on Brexit is bluntly the fact that we have made this a broad-based coalition within the Labour Party to shift opinion. And the fact that, you know, um, whether it's MPs who nominated Jeremy Corbyn or MPs who signed the motion of no confidence, you know, we have all been working together on the same page um, in pursuit of our common goal as passionate pro-Europeans. That's been reflected at grassroots level. You've had, and you've had different organisations bringing together groups under slightly different umbrellas, but I think ultimately that's been a good thing because it has shown the breadth and strength of opinion. Um, so, so I, I think when, whenever any of us have spoken out, we have thought about, you know, who is the best message carrier? What's the right way to put this message across? And sometimes that does involve having to deliver uncomfortable messages that, frankly, only people like me are actually prepared to deliver on national television or on the radio to help build pressure. Mm. But there have been other MPs who, certainly behind the scenes, have been, you know, quietly applying pressure. They've become more and more vocal recently, actually, which is why I thought... Um, you know, some of the um, interventions we've seen at Parliamentary Labour Party meetings, not from the usual suspects, has been interesting. Some of the interventions we've seen from members of the Shadow Cabinet have, that have then been leaked out, I suspect, by people close to those members of the Shadow Cabinet, has also been interesting. But it's that broad base of support. And I, I do wish that more more often than we do now, I wish sometimes people would look at things through the prism of the merits of the argument Rather than whether we're just mm-hmm. trying to use issues as wedge issues to undermine Jeremy Corbyn.
2: Is there, is there organisation then between those who are sort of, you know, much friendlier with the office and people like you who you'd be sort of going out as kind of a shield that you're going to take those hits because you know that you have the freedom to say that as someone who's known as a critic?
3: Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. You know, and and you are, you know, sort of always cognisant of, you know, if there's a meeting with Jeremy Corbyn, for example, among, you know, we've had delegations of Remain MPs going in and we've been. Um, thoughtful about who who goes in and when so some of those mps that have gone in to see jeremy corbyn have at time been exclusively people who've supported and nominated and voted for jeremy corbyn in leadership elections other times we've had some of those mps and a broader base of mps and some of jeremy's hard harshest critics it has it has varied and i think that's been helpful in showing jeremy's office and jeremy himself most importantly that there is a broad Based concern here, and that's also reflected amongst the party membership as well. I mean, you know, take someone like Laura Park, who was fourth on the London list in the European elections, would have got elected if we'd got the same number of MEPs this time that we did last time. Um, Laura's, you know, the head of momentum. We shouldn't agree yet. I, you know, I get on like a house on fire with Laura when we're talking about Europe, mm. and actually, that's opened up conversations about other policy issues where we agree with each other more than we might have suspected. So, it, you know, the the Europe issue has built some interesting coalitions within the Labour Party, which actually, to be honest, given that I'm asked almost on a weekly basis why are you still in the Labour Party, some sometimes um, by people who want me to leave to join them, and other times <laughs> by people who just want me to get out because they <laughs> hate me. Um, actually, that kind of working across. Factional boundaries um, gives me hope that actually the Labour Party, as a broad church, can not just survive but thrive if we're able to think a bit more creatively and thoughtfully about how we answer the big challenges facing the country, and do so with a bit more goodwill and um, kind of treating each other with more respect, and also. Uh, listening to the arguments rather than questioning motivations i think the ba- the bad motive assumptions that we make and this cuts both ways i'm not pretending to be an angel on this and that sometimes i don't kind of listen to someone saying something and think oh well you would say that wouldn't you oh mm. god um you know but i think we i think that's how the labor party's got to move forward ultimately well a lot
0: of people um you know a fair number of people uh have left Labour, I mean, it's obviously a huge membership, but a fair of people have left or abandoned it. The, the EU elections, and obviously those MPs left to join the independent group. I imagine that when Gavin Schuker was doing his sort of charm offensive, he kind of gave you a bell. Um, why? And you're somebody that I think that that you may have left. Why? Why was it that you decided
3: that? See, interesting, I didn't even get as far as the coffee stage with Gavin. I think there was a a, a multiple stage process, as I understand it. You know, it sort of starts off with coffee and how do you feel about things? And then it kind of ended up in sort of country club retreats, which I think was in the Express or the Mail. And then it kind of led to some people jumping ship. Um, I I have been throughout, you know, from the moment Jeremy Corbyn was first elected and then re-elected, my view is I've been a member of the Labour Party since I was 15 with a couple of interesting interruptions (laughs) along the way. And an unlikely interruptions along the way. And Were
1: you a Tory member, as well, no, did I didn't, no, I didn't know. No, I didn't. I didn't mind. join the Tories tactically, no, but actually, sure.
3: hilariously, um, when <laughs> I was uh, when I was young, um, I left the Labour Party because I was appalled at the undemocratic stitch up of our London mayoral candidate, and left in 2000, so I could put a Ken for London poster up in my window. Which, mm. given events since, and my history with Ken, is quite amusing. <laughs> and I also left around to, sort of 2003. Um, because of the iraq war and um the introduction of top-up fees against our manifesto and i cut my membership card up and sort of and um, resigned and then um just by random a, a liberal democrat telephone canvasser called and i sort of said oh i've just left the labor party so i might think about voting lib dem and that like, well, why don't you join and i got this like massive bump of stuff through in the post and i I read it carefully, and I, I looked at it, and just thought, I'm, "Do you know what? I'm actually just not a liberal democrat, and um, and I've got still got much more in common with Labour. Do you know what? Mm. I'm just gonna I'm gonna rejoin the Labour Party, and I'm just gonna fight my corner. And um, you know, I sort of did, and um, you know, the history of the Labour Party is not panned out in the way that I might have expected. But I haven't changed my view. The Labour Party is fundamentally a force for social, political, economic good in this country. Its history isn't worth sacrificing on one leader, on one leadership. I did actually try after the 2017 general election to give Jeremy Corbyn a chance and to say, well, we did get more seats than many of us predicted. Um, maybe he's earned his right to stay on. Um, and I, I restricted my kind of criticism, really, to sort of two key issues. Unfortunately, there have been big ones, which is Europe and anti-Semitism. Um, and, you know, I can't, I just can't escape the fact that I'd have fundamental problems with Jeremy Corbyn in the way that, frankly, Jeremy Corbyn has had fundamental problems with every, pretty much every single leader who's been leader while he's been a member and that's just how it is but I think um, you know if if people think the the future of the Labour Party is one that you know doesn't involve people like me and we could just be carved off and there wouldn't be consequences for the Labour Party I think that's that's pretty naive and also will be self-defeating for the Labour Party so I'm 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 sticking in there.
0: Well it's been it's been quite a week for anti-semitism we've had three lords resigning the whip the panorama special on Wednesday evening uh, which we haven't seen yet because we're recording a few hours before then. Um, the party using Carter Ruck of all law firms to uh, threaten whistleblowers, and um, a big campaign to uh, defend Chris Williamson. So not great, but it seems to have been going on. There've been many bad weeks. It's been going on for a long time, and I just what what is it that needs to be done that that isn't being done? Why will this? I don't know how I don't know how long it's going going on for now. But two, two years?
3: Three years. Three years. more, yeah. So, um,
0: so like, what, is it, what would be the way to actually just stop this and stop this from being a way that, that something repelled people uh, from the Labour Party and constantly became one of, like, the top three things that people associate with the party?
3: So I think two, there are two key remedies. One is politics and the other is procedure. Um, I think when you look at what's happened, I mean, I don't know what's going to be in the Panorama documentary, and to be honest, I don't need to watch the documentary because I've followed this issue quite closely for the last three years, and I've seen the horror show unfold. So I, I would be surprised if there's anything in panorama that does surprise me frankly, and probably horrified if there are any more surprises. Um, I, I think where things have gone badly wrong is on the procedure front, you know, incompetent administration, too lenient decisions when uh, decisions have been made in anti-Semitism cases, evidence of political interference in antisemitism cases a and i think i think those things could be sorted out through an independent complaints process and by making sure that there are rigorous and consistent standards applied in all cases so that would kind of procedurally box it off but it doesn't solve the problem because as you've said There are lots of people who will just defend the indefensible. We have got a whole campaign sanctioned by the leader of the Labour Party and the people around him going on right now about a documentary they haven't even seen. I'm going to be asking the BBC how many complaints they've received about Panorama uh, before the programme has even been broadcast. And, you know, going back to sort of what we were describing earlier about the alt-right attacks on the media, what on earth do the left-wing people in this country think they're doing attacking journalists and attacking broadcasters before they've even seen the integrity of the work? I've had my differences with John Ware's reporting um, over, over, um, over the years and on, this, um, on, this, on these sorts of issues. Um, but I, I just don't understand how you could attack um, this. I don't understand how you can defend Chris Williamson, the indefensible. Um, But people are. So that comes down to political leadership and it comes down to educating people about what modern anti-Semitism is and how it manifests itself, making sure there's proper training in place and making sure that when Jeremy Corbyn says zero tolerance, he genuinely means it. But I I do I do think and, you know, people are again attacking sort of the people around Jeremy Corbyn on this, you know, is this Carrie Murphy's fault? Is this Seamus Milne's fault? And and actually, I, I kind of think that that's the that's the easy option. The fact is that, you know, I've never had a conversation with these people. I don't know if they're to blame or not. What I do know is that they're unelected members of party staff who can't answer themselves. The person who appointed them, the person that they report to is the leader of the Labour Party. And I think people should have more guts, actually, to challenge Jeremy Corbyn on this and say, Jeremy Corbyn, what are you doing about this? You're the leader of the Labour Party. Where is your leadership? And by the way, Jeremy Corbyn, what is it about your kind of politics that creates conditions in which a kind of crank left anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist politics feels at home in the Labour Party. And how are you going to challenge that? And I think of all the people that could probably do more good to challenge anti-Semitism on the left in this country, Jeremy Corbyn has the credibility with the people who need to hear the message more than certainly I do, and he has totally failed on that front, mainly because I don't actually think that Jeremy Corbyn understands what anti-Semitism is. And I think his own track record of language, of imagery he's commented on, on people he shares a platform with, stands up the fact that Jeremy Corbyn can literally stand next to anti-Semites and not recognise it. So Labour's got a lot of
0: issues, uh, but then we're looking at uh, uh, the future prime minister, Um who has uh, said various Islamophobic, racist things, has a lot of baggage um, and looks like he's he's not going to be able to deliver the nonsense that he's promised. So when you think about a general election, whether that happens this year or next year, um, sometimes when I think about it, it's like, well, nobody can win. Literally, everybody I think about is like, well, they're in trouble. They're in trouble. Um how do you sort of feel about it? Do you, are you? Does it make you apprehensive? Do you actually think? Yeah. Do you know what? I think Johnson is uh, is someone that we could, you know, that we could defeat. Like. Is, is, it, is it kind of mixed mixed emotions?
3: Yeah, well, firstly, on, on um, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, I mean, how depressing that we both of our mainstream parties are mired in these controversies and a seeming inability to recognise and tackle the problem. And I have said to so many Conservative MPs who have over the years said to me, well done on being so brave in speaking out on anti-Semitism, that must be really difficult. Well, where are you now, guys? Where are you speaking out for the majority of decent Muslims in this country who are horrified by what they're seeing and genuinely think you're party is one they cannot vote for not because they disagree with you but because your party is not a party that is safe for muslims it's a terrible position to be in and i see all the same mistakes of the labour party being replicated by the party of government i think this is just a terrible place for a country to be in so morally i think our starting point has got to be to clean up our politics but when we get to a next general election i mean uh, i mean i represent a really diverse constituency on the london essex border um, I've had lifelong Labour voters in the Jewish community telling me that they, it doesn't matter what I've said, doesn't matter what my record is, they cannot vote Labour at the next general election. And how am I supposed to persuade them otherwise on the basis of the evidence and the track record available that a Labour government wouldn't be problematic for British Jews? Similarly, my Muslim constituents, even ones who maybe are economically to the right of me, might even be pro-Brexit, might want a Boris Johnson sort of you know, economic and Brexit policy how could they vote for a Prime Minister who has described Muslim women as pillar boxes and bank robbers? Um, You know, I do think that both parties are letting down the country, um, are showing that they're incapable of speaking for the interests of everyone in the country, not just sections of the country. So those of us who are in those parties have responsibility to sort it out. And if we don't, there will be electoral consequences. Uh, And, you know, across the country, you know, we've got Um, Conservative liberal fights, actually, the Liberal Democrats in lots of places are the main challenges to the Conservative Party. Um, The Labour Party has lost seats to the Liberal Democrats in previous general elections on issues like Iraq and tuition fees. We're in danger of of, of going back to that pattern again. So, you know, in answer to your question, you know, who who does the country choose? At this stage, I think the outcome of the next general election is the country won't choose any of us and we will still be in a hung parliament. I think that's the most likely outcome. And
0: finally, do you think I mean everybody talks about in their different ways from Jeremy Corbyn to Boris Johnson talks about bringing you bring the country together, moving on from Brexit. At the same time, you definitely feel like on the Brexit party and and the Brexit press, you know, there's enormous enthusiasm for a for a culture war on all kinds of, you know, identity issues as well as as well as Brexit. Um do you see even if it's not in the immediate future a kind of a scenario that does sort of bring people together is are there way what would be the kind of at least making a start
3: yeah i t- i absolutely do um and i'm glad you you kind of pose the question that way rather as opposed to are we headed for a culture war where the answer um might be might be yes um, I think we can see it off by reminding people about what this country has in common and what we as human beings have in common in terms of our experiences, our hopes, our ambitions, our dreams, and some of the work that I've been doing, whether it's on anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or Um, What's going on in terms of homophobia and transphobia in this country and the Birmingham School Gates controversy and this kind of the, the way in which people want to pit different communities together. Those of us who know what it is like to be different and on the receiving end of prejudice in this country should know better than anyone else what that looks like and how it must be confronted and defeated. And when I was first elected, a brick was put through the window of a mosque in my constituency. And as the local MP, of course, I condemned it. And someone posted underneath on the local newspaper website, this guy must be an idiot, doesn't he realise, he's a gay MP, that these Muslims want to throw him off the top of the nearest building when Sharia Shari law is brought in. So I posted underneath saying, and you, don't th- you, you obviously think I'm so stupid that I don't realise that when you're finished with the Muslims, you're not coming for me too. And, you know, they're, they're, you know it's that old you know Pastor Martin Niemoller Um, you know, sort of uh, poem, you know, first they came for the socialists and, you know, it kind of goes through and they go through the socialists, the trade unionists, the Jews, and then they came for me and, and no one was left to fight for me. I think that's what people in this country need to really reflect on in terms of how we move forward together is that you know we, we, we do not all have to be the same. We don't have to think the same things, believe the same things. We just need to respect each other and recognise that there is more that unites us than divides us and think about how we create a country that genuinely includes everyone and gives everybody opportunity and hope And possibility. And if you can build a politics around that, you can win the next general election by a landslide, because I genuinely think whether people voted leave or remain, that is what they're crying out for is some optimism, some hope and some possibility. And there is a prize to be won there for the party and the politics that can deliver it. Thank well,
1: you. I'm sold. I'm going to join the Labour Party
3: uh, today. Spin
0: the wheel.
1: Yeah.
2: Today I will be <laughs> joining the <laughs> <laughs>
0: Labour Party. <laughs> uh, we come to the end of the show, which means our guest West Streeting is going to add something else to the surprisingly capacious Brexit time capsule. Uh, Wes, what is going into our repository of things we'll miss if we ever
3: leave the EU?
0: <laughs> it, can be, it can be tangible, abstract, I've... whatever you like.
3: Well, actually, maybe may, may appropriately, and I'll, I'll be a minority of one here. I'm going to miss Kate Hoey, actually. Good old Kate. Holy oh, miss Kate. moly. <laughs> I was oh, not I'll, expecting I'll miss, that. I'll miss, I'll miss Kate. And you know what? The reason why Kate deserves to go into the time capsule is that iconic image of Kate and Nigel Farage on the back of that bus, like something from Howard's Way during the <laughs> referendum happened, campaign. Yeah. Honestly, I found it the most nauseating, stomach turning thing I think Kate has done in all the years I've known her. Um, but, um, but, no, I, on, on a personal level, I will, I will miss Kate. And she's, 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 and also, let's be honest, uh, Romaniacs listeners, she is a great pantomime villain. Everyone loves to hate KOE. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to be very lonely in that massive Sorry. box. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: but she's going to be in there with a bunch of, like, you know, she's Erasmus like, students like, and free pa- movies. She's not going to be having a great <laughs> no, time no, in there. No, no. Like, <laughs> It's as good a punishment as you can inflict. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This week's foreign language clip isn't European at all. It's in Arabic from listener Arthur Snell.
1: Lora al Arabia Lora we feel al Arabia Yomian. Brexit sofa Tanoa the al Boratonia, ولكن لا يزال بإمكاننا Yajib and
3: La Abedin.
0: That means historically Arabic was also a European language, and in the present day many European citizens speak Arabic daily. Brexit will limit the cultural diversity of Britain, but we can still stop it. We must never give up. Arthur adds, all those years in the Foreign Office put to some use, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Taxpayers' money well spent. <laughs> Remember to send us your European language clips, record something on your phone in a quiet room, and email it to us at info at We'll use the best ones. That's the end of the show. West Streeting, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. And here's our theme tune, Demonism Monster, by National Treasures Corner Shop. You can get a free download from their website, ampleplay.co.uk, and stage your own Romaniacs around the kitchen table. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and special thanks to our latest Patreon backers.
2: Hello, uh, it's a big shout-out from me uh, to Anne of Days, uh, Elizabeth Wyman Alex Reese, Daniel O'Sullivan Sarana Mera, Terry Richardson Ollie Doney, and Neil Holmes
1: and thanks from me to Glenn Hicks Adam French Hannah Walton Luke Bishop James Stenoich Simon Merrill Stuart Dix Guy just Guy Debbie Salt and Simon Markart
0: and finally thanks from me to David Ivory Howie Martinez Forever 15 Steve Bryant Mitch Smith Odile Trier or Trier, Howard Brooke, Alana O'Rourke, John J.C. Clark, Matthew Bailey, and Rob Bethke. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ingrid Oliver and Ian Dunn. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese, at Soho Radio.